Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. I'm Corey Shockey, and I lead the Foreign and Defense Policy Team at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am delighted this morning to chair this panel on the foreign and defense policy implications of the Biden administration's first 100 days. And I have the pleasure of introducing a lineup of foreign and defense policy talent that is the equivalent of the Yankees batting order of the late 1920s. And this morning we have for you my predecessor as the leader of the foreign and defense team, Danielle Pletka, who created it in her 17 years as vice president of American Enterprise Institute. She has had a distinguished career as a senior professional staff member of Senate Foreign Relations Committee. She teaches Middle East policy at Georgetown. She's a regular on Meet the Press and has a terrific podcast here at AEI. Our second murderer in the lineup is Dr. Fred Kagan, who directs the Critical Threats Project at AEI. He's one of the architects of the surge in Iraq, a great military and defense strategist, the author of Lessons of a Long War, and also a great book of history called The End of the Old Order, Napoleon and Europe. He's a former professor at West Point, holds a PhD from Yale. Dr. Derek Scissors is a commissioner on the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission, He's the chief economist of the China Beige Book, author of the China Global Investment Tracker, holds a PhD from Stanford, and got a start working international economics and energy in the Defense Department. And batting cleanup for us, Professor Colin Duick. He's the professor in the Shar School of Public Policy at George Mason University, the author of the Obama Doctrine, American Grand Strategy Today. He's advised presidential campaigns, he's been a Rhodes Scholar, and holds a PhD from Princeton. So my friends, where I would like us to start this morning is for each of you in that order to let us know what you think the biggest departures are from the previous administration and whether they are improvements. Danny, why don't you start us? Thank you, Corey. You know, look, it's early to assess the Biden administration. So in some ways, in some ways, 100 days is really unfair. On the other hand, the president himself created this construct by making a big deal of it going and speaking before Congress, making a series of pledges to all of us that uh, that he was going to uh, achieve. But one of the things that I think was hugely important to a lot of us who work in foreign policy is um, is that he articulated uh, as, a, as a candidate and even in his sort of most important speech before the Democratic National Convention, his 
commitment to democracy and human rights. And in that, he really sought to underscore, I think, what he perceived to be a difference with the Trump administration. Now, we can quibble about what the Trump administration's commitment to human rights was, uh, but certainly the president himself did not spend a lot of time thinking about the well-being and democracy uh, of, uh, of nations abroad when he thought about his foreign policy. It wasn't uh, up there on his list of priorities. The problem for me right now is that those changes that we've seen so far have been you know, really sort of bumper sticker in orientation. Now, Fred's going to talk about Iran and, and Afghanistan, and so I don't want to, I don't want to um, uh, sort of eat into into that. Although I think there are, uh, I think there are human rights, religious freedom, democracy questions that we need to focus on there. If indeed we have a president who committed to being the man who cared about these issues. But where I'd like to start actually is, is an area that, that I've been working on with a colleague of mine, Brett Schaefer from Heritage, and that's on the United Nations. You know, one of the things that we saw in the Trump administration was a very, very tough attitude toward the UN. And of course, in the year of COVID, we remember the president pulling us out of the World Health Organization, stepping down, less memorable perhaps, from the Human Rights Council. And there are a number of other areas where the Trump administration was pretty tough on these UN agencies um, for, I think, uh, for, I think, problems that most of us agree were problems. You know, the World Health Organization really fell down on the job in the face of the world's most terrible pandemic. The, the Biden administration has moved very quickly to both rejoin the Human Rights Council, rejoin the World Health Organization, reinstate U.S. support for an organization called the United Nations Relief Works Agency, which is dedicated solely to the provision of untied assistance to the Palestinians, and which has a record of teaching anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, anti-Zionism, anti-Israel. And the problem for me is not that the president chose to rejoin any of these organizations, that after all is the prerogative of the president of the United States and Joe Biden was elected fair and square. The problem for me is that he joined them without getting anything. He went back into all of these organizations with no mind, neither in writing nor in statements, to the problems that they that they clearly manifested. We have the Human Rights Council on which uh, such human rights luminaries as China and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia uh, have sat, and China China was just recently re-elected to 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 the Council of the uh, at the, um, at the HRC. They spend more than fifty percent of their time condemning Israel. Okay to rejoin, but. What did we get for it? Did we get any changes? Did we get any reforms? Did we get any commitments? Nada. World Health Organization, one of the most important things we need to do coming out of this pandemic is figure out how the world's premier health organization, the one organization we all have that is dedicated to helping give us early warning of a pandemic, instead decided to kowtow to the Chinese, downplay the pandemic, downplay the effects, um, and act, frankly, as a lobbyist for the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. Rejoined it, no questions about getting to the bottom of that. You know, again, these are really, these are, these are symbolic. These aren't going to be things that, that, that are hugely important to, you know, to a, a guy who's driving a truck in, in Ohio. On the other hand, if you want to talk about the commitment the administration made, 
what we can see is, no, it's really just rhetoric. Similar, you know, on China, we're going to hear from Derek, who's wonderful on this topic. But, you know, on China, what we've seen is there have been some sanctions on Hong Kong, but nothing that really bites into the to, to, to Beijing in a serious way. On Russia, where we've seen you know, the attacks on Alexei Navalny, we've seen sanctions. Certainly some, although not as many as the Trump administration, but none on the oligarchs that Alexei Navalny underscored were most important to Putin. Nothing on Nord Stream 2, which is the uh, gas pipeline project that is so vital to the Russians to circumvent Ukraine. No sanctions there. That's going to get finished in the Biden administration. Last, just quick minute of, of, of you know, some of this sort of rhetoric versus reality problem that I see and I fear is going to persist. You know, again, the administration is racing to rejoin the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, but no mind to getting anything from the Iranians on the governance side. So this is an administration that cares more about democracy and more about human freedom than those awful people beforehand. I got some numbers for you because I know Derek loves numbers and I want him to smile at me. 227 people were executed in Iran last year. That's just apart from the number of uh, the number who died from COVID. Uh, this year, they took a, a uh, they took a hiatus. 27 people were executed in January. Uh, 13 more have been executed since then. Women's rights. Yeah, not really so much. None of that has been a priority. The only place that the Biden administration seems to worry about human rights is in Saudi Arabia. And I would argue there are other countries in the Middle East than Saudi Arabia. Last, not least, Syria. 177 people died in Syria. 138, 177 in March, 138 in February, 113 in January. Yeah, I know, you know, in half a million, that's a drop in the bucket. But if you're a government that cares about human rights, maybe you ought to have a plan on Syria, even apart from what the Russians and the Iranians are up to over there. Again, total radio silence. Not, you know, it's not all about Syria. It's not all about human rights. We have other exigencies. We have other challenges. China, Russia are very serious. But if you want to be an administration that touts yourself as one that is going to bring America back to its values, and that is something Joe Biden has said repeatedly, there's precious little sign that that's happening. Thank you, Danny. I think this issue of the gap between the poses they're striking and what they are actually willing to run risks to achieve and to commit effort and money to achieve is a really important one. And I notice in defense, for example, the administration is making a lot of bold claims in particular about managing a rising China, um, that a defense budget, so a defense strategy largely consistent with where the Trump administration was headed. But the national defense strategy that the Trump administration put in place in 2017 was contingent for its execution on a three to 5% year on year increase in real growth in defense spending. The Trump administration only did that for its first two years, and the Biden administration looks set to cut defense spending by about 2% in real terms. And so the gap between what they are claiming we are going to do and our actual ability to do it uh, is a worrisome gap that I think we already see opening after 100 days.
But Dr. Kagan, where do you see continuity and discontinuity in the first hundred days of the Biden administration's national security strategies? I read through the State of the Union address. I never watched these things because I don't find the theater entertaining. But what struck me was that the 1990s are calling and they want their strategic pause back. It isn't as if we've gone back to the time capsule of the Obama administration. We've gone back to the time capsule of about 1995 or maybe 1994 when there was really nothing much going on in the world. And we were the dominant superpower and we, we could pretty much do you know whatever we wanted, but we wanted to do nothing. And so we were going to reap peace dividends and we were going to focus on, in Lloyd George's expression, uh, building a land fit for heroes, um, having, having won the last war. That's what the State of the Union sounded like to me. In that sense, it was discontinuous um, in rhetoric from the previous administration, but it did reflect a larger continuity that I see in the national security discourse over the last few years, which I would put this way. Political reality in the United States is accelerating away from actual reality so fast you can see a redshift. And it gets worse and worse all the time. We simply are making noises about the world that have the most tenuous relationship to what is actually going on in the world. So one thing that the president didn't mention is that this month, the Russians mobilized and made every preparation for what would have been the largest and most complicated mechanized maneuver on the European continent since 1945 against Ukraine. Not against Eastern Ukraine, against all of Ukraine. Could the United States and its NATO allies have stopped that maneuver? With our current posture, no. Now, you might say Ukraine isn't a NATO ally, although the threat of the invasion did prompt President Zelensky to request a NATO membership action plan, uh, which received a very chilly reception um, in Brussels, which certainly helped Putin's cause. But okay, that's fine. The fact that Putin was able to do that around Ukraine means he could also do that around the Baltic states, with whom we do have a treaty obligation. Could we defend them against this kind of uh, attack? not with our current posture. So that's kind of a problem. Um, and it is a problem that should be very concerning to a commander in chief. Now we had assessed all along that the Russians weren't actually going to invade, that was the general assessment, but that's not good enough. If we're serious about honoring our alliance commitments, if we're serious about standing up to aggressive revisionist dictatorships that seek to invade and occupy and control their neighbors, then one might at least speak about that. So the rhetoric here isn't even keeping pace with reality, let alone the actions. Danny promised that I would talk about Iran. What I am going to point out is that the Iranians have had for years and retained the capability to close the Strait of Hormuz for some period of time with mines and missiles and various other things. Derek probably has the figures off the top of his head. I don't, but rather a lot of the world's oil travels through that particular waterway. And it would be rather a massive disruption of the global economy if they did that. Now, it is a fact that the U.S. and its allies could reopen the strait if the Iranians undertook to close it. But it would be a major military operation. And it would be much more problematic to conduct after we have completed the pivot away from the Middle East that the Obama administration tried to start, that the Trump administration tried to forward, and that this administration seems determined to carry through. And it will get harder and harder as defense budgets shrink, defense capabilities are reoriented on domestic priorities, and we focus 
like kids in a soccer game playing magnet ball on China as if that's the only problem in the world that we actually have to deal with or think about dealing with militarily. That should concern us. Another thing that concerns me parenthetically is I did a, a search in the text for the word Iraq and found nothing, which is a rather distressing since there are American soldiers fighting in Iraq and fighting ISIS in Iraq, which is not defeated. And of course, confronting Iranian threats and being uh, targeted and killed periodically by the Iranians. You might think that the president, commander in chief, would at least say the word. He did, of course, talk about Afghanistan. And he defended or attempted to defend one of the most unjustifiable, foolish, and irresponsible foreign policy decisions I can remember. And that's saying a lot. The United States has and has had, since the end of the Trump administration, less than a brigade's worth of troops in Afghanistan. President Biden and those who are echoing his and praising his strategic decision talk about the war in Afghanistan as if it were still 2010, as if we still had 100,000 Americans there, as if it was costing us a fortune on a day-to-day -day basis to maintain our presence there, as if we were taking casualties on a regular basis there. None of those things are true. The United States Army has more than 30 brigades in the active force and significantly more than that in the active and reserve. We're talking about a troop level that is less than a 50th of the U.S. Army combat units. Can we not sustain that, really? Sure, we could. So why did we pull out? I don't think the president has offered any very good answer to that. He has said things like, we degraded al-Qaeda. That's true, we did. But for those who are not professional military analysts, degrade is a temporary condition. Degrade is not defeat. It's not destroy. And an organization remains degraded only if you continue to degrade it. The notion that we're going to continue to do that over the horizon is fanciful. If you want to picture U.S. Delta Force guys riding unicorns over Pakistan into the Konar River Valley, please do so. That is about as realistic as the over-the-horizon counterterrorism mission the president is talking about. And I will simply say, if you imagine that Putin, Khamenei, Xi, and everyone else who wishes America ill didn't draw conclusions about America's staying power from this decision, you're wrong. They noticed. The only other justification he offered was that there's lots of other Salafi jihadi movements out there. He didn't use that phrase. That's our phrase. Lots of other terrorist movements out there, which is true. And we at CTP have been tracking it. The, the global Al-Qaeda movement and ISIS movement has metastasized. It's extremely dangerous. I have yet to hear a single word from this administration about anything it intends to do about any of that. So we have it offered as a justification for this surrender to the Taliban, but not offered as an explanation for anything we're actually going to do about it. That's devastating. That's the current state of the policy. And whatever the continuity or discontinuity, if this continues, the consequences for American security will be very dire. If I may add one thing on Afghanistan, Fred, there were zero American soldiers killed in Afghanistan in the last year. And I think that reinforces your point that um, there is a mindset that uh, that the United States is fighting and dying in Afghanistan, as opposed to providing help and support to an ally that is bearing enormous costs. Um, and 
you know, the casualty figures for Afghan national security forces are eye-poppingly high. And yet Afghans continue to volunteer for their national security forces because they want the kind of Afghanistan that we are helping them build. And it does seem to me that a Biden administration that is striking poses about putting human rights and democracy promotion at the center of American foreign policy is running the risk of um, having its bluff called when both of those things collapse in Afghanistan, because uh, we can't bear to uh, carry the burden any longer of zero casualties in the past year. Next up, Derek Scissors. China is at the forefront of the administration's approach to the world. What's going on there? Continuity or discontinuity? You know, I have a controversial issue on the Trump administration with regard to trade and especially China, which was there was a lot more talk than action. Uh, it's unfair to do this to the Biden administration because it's early, as Danny said, but we're seeing the same signs here. Um, in 2019, uh, then candidate Biden said China was not competition for us. Uh, 2021, he has said we have to spend heavily or China will eat our lunch. But spending heavily with, you know, trivial taxation in comparison to the amount of spending is really easy. It's harder for future generations, but it's easy for us. I, I don't find that at all reassuring with regard to a commitment on China. We have trade actions that are pressing and are not being discussed at all. We have China actions that are, in fact, painfully overdue. Those are being reviewed. Meanwhile, we have multiple huge domestic spending programs that are ready to go. There are definitely people in the administration, uh, the Biden administration, who want sound sign of China policy, just as there were in the Trump administration. But we have not seen any sign this is a White House priority in terms of action. Talking, yes, but, but not acting in any way that would, that would be costly to the United States. I'm going to start with trade before going to China. Um, I am a fan of, of U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. She doesn't have her deputies confirmed yet. Uh, nominations across the board have been slow because the administration is pushing spending programs rather than staffing itself, which is a little weird because you think you'd want to have your staff in place to implement the spending programs. Um, we should be wrapping up free trade agreement talks with the U UK and Kenya uh, and learning about what President Biden wants to do next. Uh, we're not doing those things. Most important on the trade side, uh, Trade Promotion Authority expires July 1st. Trade Promotion Authority is the means by which Congress says, we will give you an up or down vote on trade so uh, your trade deals don't get amended to death and become impossible to pass. President Obama pushed very hard for it, I know, because I was involved in that push uh, as while being at AEI. President Trump used it for the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. There's no sign President Biden is even going to ask for it. Um, when you make a commitment, and this echoes uh, something what my colleagues have said, when you make a commitment to being better to your friends than President Trump was, which is a good commitment. President Trump was often not good to our friends, but you won't ask for trade promotion authority to possibly negotiate a trade deal. Uh, there's there's a, an inconsistency there. Uh, and I hope the Biden administration does get its act together and ask for TPA, but so far we there's no sign of that. Um, we're likely to see a larger trade deficit this year than last year due to economic recovery. We had strong economic data come out today. Um, that's going to encourage the administration into being similarly protectionist with regard to the trade deficit as the Trump administration. So I think we're going to see continuity in that respect. Specifically to China, I don't see China tariffs imposed by the Trump administration being raised this year. 
If the Biden administration were to raise them, the bilateral deficit with China is going to rise due to U.S. economic recovery. They would then get blamed. Easy, easy political points for Republicans. Uh, so I don't think we see China tariffs lifted at least this year. Um, as with the general trade situation, uh, we have seen very no action on China on trade, uh, good or bad. May is going to be important. Two different kinds of things. One, there should be the nomination for Undersecretary for Bureau of Industry and Security in Commerce. This agency is the one responsible for implementing export controls. The Undersecretary position was never filled, not in four years, on a permanent basis under President Trump, which is a major mistake. The agency has not implemented export controls that were passed by Congress in the summer of 2018. Congress correctly said, we have a problem of selling China technology, we don't wanna sell them. And the Department of Commerce said, ah, I don't care, and has done nothing about it. So we should see this person be nominated and commit to export control implementation in May. If we don't see that, it's a big problem for the Biden administration as it was for the Trump administration. Another event in May, is there was a Trump administration executive order blocking investment in companies that are linked strongly to the People's Liberation Army. The Biden administration delayed the implementation to May 27th, which is perfectly reasonable. They have the right to do that with an executive order. But this is a very big issue because it was a complete failure under President Trump. People have made comments about me loving numbers, so let me give you a couple numbers. Um, U.S. investment in Chinese stocks and bonds in China, according to the Department of Treasury, tripled under President Trump. That's kind of a weird trade war when money goes from $100 billion of Chinese stocks and bonds to $300 billion. That isn't the big problem. The big problem is the United States claims to have invested $2.6 trillion in Cayman Islands stocks and bonds with the minor problem that there is no stock or bond market in the Cayman Islands. So it's money going into an offshore source and we're pretending that we don't know what happens after that. Well, a large chunk of it goes to China. U.S. investment in Chinese stocks and bonds is probably on the order of $1.1 trillion and is soaring. This is a way for the Biden administration to differentiate itself from the Trump administration and to address an enormous problem. We're funding our enemies. Uh, maybe it's innocuous. Maybe we're funding furniture makers. Maybe we're funding the PLA. Maybe we're funding firms conducting genocide. Uh, but we need to know that. We don't. The Trump administration talked about doing something about it, didn't get around to it. The Biden administration is up now, and if they don't take this on, they're not serious about China. Um, what's happening in the, in the period where the Biden administration is reviewing everything, which is their standard answer on China policy, is that Senate Democrats are in the lead. Senator Schumer, they have backing from Republicans in both houses. Um, there's a, a bill called the Endless Frontier, which is a federal research and development bill, which in general is a good idea. The question is whether it's gonna be recognizable after all these amendments are attached by both Democrats and Republicans. And that's the problem with Congress leading. Congress had better instincts than President Trump on China. It has better instincts, I think, than President Biden on China. But it's very hard to start off with a good bill and get it through in recognizable fashion. And that's where we need leadership from the White House, which we are not yet getting. Uh, we will get a, a bipartisan bill subsidizing US production of semiconductors. Um, that raises an, a, a final crucial issue, which is if you subsidize production of semiconductors in the U.S. and you create jobs and we make the chips here, all that sounds good. Where do the materials and equipment come from? Some of the materials are going to come from China unless we prevent that. The Trump administration did not act to lock China out of supply chains even after COVID. It talked about it, just didn't do it. The Biden administration is going to have to do it 
uh, or we're going to get extremely politically embarrassing outcomes like, yay, the US is producing lots of chips, which we can't make without the Chinese. I am not an expert on military issues. And so I am skipping the very important part of the US-China military competition. I will talk a little bit about politics and, and uh, human rights and climate change. The administration, my administration has rightly called out what's going on in Xinjiang, uh, which, which is the province where uh, Uyghurs are being put in concentration camps and forced sterilization is occurring. Uh, but as Danny noted, they haven't accepted any consequences of this. Um, you know, we're going to not buy Xinjiang cotton, which is trivial, um, that not an important issue for the U.S. Um, this is worse in a sense than what happened to President Trump, because President Trump didn't care about human rights in Xinjiang or anywhere else. Uh, and, and the Biden administration does care, but it hasn't taken steps commensurate with its, its, its words. So there's an element of hypocrisy. We're not going to send U.S. political officials to the Olympics. Really? This is a genocidal government, but it's okay for athletes to go and support them and give them a huge public relations win. You know, if you're going to use the word genocide, you need to act behind it. Um, and, and we're not seeing that yet. I hope we will, but we're not yet. Um, climate change. We're likely to get a, another, I know it's hard to believe, we're at $6 trillion in spending packages, but there's more coming. We're going to at least get to $8 trillion. Large spending package on green energy. Right now, China dominates those supply chains. It will subsidize intensely to continue to control those supply chains. The administration hasn't even stated a principle on fighting climate change versus accepting China dependence. Uh, Nick Eberstadt, Evan Abramsky, and I had a, a, a cover story in National Review about the U.S. has become truly uh, energy independent in a meaningful way, which is we're now a net energy exporter. That's an amazing accomplishment uh, after decades of depending on dictatorships for oil are we now going to move into depending on another dictatorship for green energy uh, equipment? You know, we need a statement from the administration on this that's definitive. We don't have one. Uh, in general, they say climate change is separate from other issues. I, I can't speak to the world of climate change, but I can tell you that will not work with the Chinese at all. There is no chance. The only way they will deal with us meaningfully on climate change is we placate them everywhere else. And anytime we don't placate them, they'll say, well, we can't really cooperate on climate change anymore if you're gonna act this way. They've just done this, a version of this with Australia. Um, so there's a lack of realism in the administration's approach to China. And I, ho I hope it's temporary. They don't have their people in place, it's early. The reason I find it especially disturbing is, remember what I said at the beginning, in 2019, candidate Biden was completely unrealistic about China. Now he sounds realistic, but his administration still isn't. And that's what I'm looking for, uh, you know, some improvement on in May and afterward. Um, I'll add a couple of things about the about China and military issues, um, because the Pentagon is uh, is leaning way forward on this, and well, they should, right? They fear that we that our margin of war fighting uh, success has been chipped away to a point where we could actually lose a war that China starts over Taiwan, uh, attacks on other American allies in Asia. And so uh, Congress has been terrific on this, creating the Pacific Deterrence Initiative uh, and the potential for funding conventional missile deployments to the region that will help counter China's strongest uh, offense challenge. And they're also thinking very carefully 
about where vulnerabilities in our military supply chains exist. Uh, the issues that Derek was raising about uh, China being an essential supplier uh, to, to things we produce. Just one small example, rare earths, which are not actually rare, they're just messy and difficult to get your hands on. And so most advanced economies have pushed the mining and production refinement of them into places that have lower environmental and labor standards. And China had a 15 year policy to invest in those, to undercut other global suppliers and create a dominant market position. It's not the law of gravity that China is essential to global refinement of rare earths. The Defense Department and the Energy Department in the Trump administration recognized that and began to try and open up both mines and processing facilities in the United States and in trusted allies like Australia. But we need to really also do what Japan did in 2010 after China used its chokehold on rare earths to cut off Japan's supply. They incentivized innovation to reduce reliance on rare earths in their production. And we need to think as creatively as that because, um, you know, Secretary Austin is right that China is the pacing challenge for the American military. Um, but China's advantages of not requiring public consent, uh, not uh, being able to forcibly take information from its so-called commercial enterprises, uh, we need to put a lot more creativity and a lot more effort and actually also a lot more money into those challenges. And I don't see indications in the Biden defense budget that we are seeing that kind of focused attention. I would really like to hear from Professor Colin Duick on what all of this means for conservative foreign and defense policy. Where do you see uh, the state of play for conservatives and where do you see it headed in the Biden administration? First of all, just on this point about convergence and divergence, I, I agree with a lot of what was said, that there are some striking uh, divergences. I mean, obviously, the Biden administration puts climate change as a top priority in a very different way from what the Trump administration did. Uh, divergence on Iran policy, uh, divergence on personnel. I think, in a way, what you're seeing is kind of the return of the Obamanots. I mean, there's a lot of the same people coming back and some of the same assumptions, at least. However, I think there's a lot of convergence actually more quietly uh, between Trump and Obama. Um, this accelerated drawdown from Afghanistan, at least a rhetorical hard line on China. The notion that foreign policy needs to be tied more directly to middle class or working class concerns, right? This was something that I think Democrats did get the message from the Trump years. Uh, frankly, the notion that the president is the leader who will do what he likes on foreign policy. I mean, that's consistent regardless of administration. They're going to claim executive authority in a lot of ways. Um, so there are uh, continuities in some ways on trade, protectionism, uh, skepticism toward arguments for new military intervention. And this goes back to Obama. So this is now, you know, a decade, really, which is worth, which is worth keeping in mind. It's, it seems to be bipartisan. Um, so those are 
con points of convergence actually between Obama and Trump that you don't hear about as much from partisans, I think, on either side. Now, uh, just to loop back to your question about conservatives, I think the Trump era showed that um, there are underlying differences between different kinds of conservatives on foreign policy, which was maybe not as obvious before 2016, but now it's blindingly obvious. There's a range of opinion, right? Even in Congress, but certainly outside of Congress with the general public. You have more hawkish activist uh, conservatives, you have non-interventionist conservatives and libertarians, and then you have kind of everybody in between. Um, as long as Trump was president, I think he was able to get the support of most Republican voters, not necessarily most conservative commentators, but most Republican voters on his foreign policy along with uh, pretty much everything else. But now that he's left the White House, that debate is, is wide open. And, and um, so there are some underlying differences. And in a way, this goes back decades, right? If you think about the, the non-interventionist wing of the party, somebody like a Senator Rand Paul or the more activist wing, they're all now going to feel free to make their case regardless of Donald Trump. And that's exactly what they're doing. And there are also people in the middle. Uh, somebody like Senator Cruz, I think, just sort of positions himself in the middle between, between those two positions. Um, now, the thing that's worth keeping in mind about the history of it is that it's the middle position among conservatives that's actually always been the pivotal group. People who, uh, for example, in the county where I live have license plates that say, don't tread on me, right? They're not necessarily interested in every foreign crisis, but they're also pretty hawkish when you scratch them hard enough. Um, so they're, they're uncomfortable with uh, long-term nation-building missions, and they've, they've made that clear. But at the same time, uh, hard line on a lot of issues, Iran, defense spending, counterterrorism, you just go down the list. And so Trump tapped into that. I think one of the things that Trump did that was interesting and unusual, he showed that you could create a new coalition. He sort of built a coalition that allied the non-interventionists to the hardliners, right? We, we didn't realize that was even possible, but he did it. He did it. And so he shook up a lot of orthodoxies. He changed the conversation. Um, he did something and he did it precisely by not running as a dove or a pure non-interventionist. He, he's not a Ron, Ron Paul, for example, right? Um, so he was hardline on China, hard, sounded hardline on defense, on counterterrorism. He wasn't just a pure dovish candidate, but he was withering in his critiques of what he considered to be failed past interventions. So that, that allowed him to connect with the Rand Paul faction. So uh, that worked politically for him within the party for as long as he was president. Now, um, I think it's in the in basketball terms, I would call it a jump ball. I think in the next two, three years, you're gonna see a wide variety of types of Republican leaders and candidates who are gonna make their case apart from Donald Trump, on policy, depending on their own convictions and on where they think the party's headed. And this could go in a lot of different ways. Um, you could see candidates who are who take the lesson from the Trump years that the party needs to be um, more protectionist, more non-interventionist, more nationalistic, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, you could also see candidates who, um, whatever their personal favor or disfavor towards Donald Trump, take a position that is that is more activist on foreign policy and pretty energetic or vigorous. Um, and I will just point out that if you look at public opinion polls, there's a lot of misperceptions about conservative opinion over the last few years. Actually, the average Trump supporter, never mind the average Republican, the average core Trump supporter supports NATO. And this was true throughout the Trump years. If you look at, for example, Chicago Council polls, Pew, Gallup, People liked the idea in the end that he was shaking things up and demanding more from our allies, but they were 
they're basically pro-NATO, according to the public opinion polls. Um, so it is not the case that the average Trump supporter was calling for you know, the dismantling of the U.S. alliance system. It's, it's just not true. They supported his particular approach to increased burden sharing. Um, but that's a bit of a misperception. And if people think that's true, it might feed into misperceptions moving ahead. At the same time, there's no question he did tap into widespread ambivalence on some issues. I would say globalization and free trade would be a good example. As it turns out, we've all been taught a lesson that a lot of blue-collar, non-college educated Republicans and conservatives uh, have mixed feelings at best about free trade and globalization. Trump tapped into that. He recognized it. He actually encouraged it. I would say he actively encouraged that feeling. And we're in a different world now politically. And there's other issues like that as well, Afghanistan. Um, however, on China, he actually did the opposite, right? He nudged the party in a more hardline direction. Um, and I actually think that's one of the major legacies of the administration. Um, so, look, I would say moving ahead, uh, one thing that you're already seeing is you're seeing increased sense among congressional Republicans that uh, a harder line on China is warranted on the merits of the case. Um, and, you know, Derek's certainly right that, that it's, it hasn't gone far enough. Uh, but um, this has really become, I think, a bipartisan issue. Democrats don't seem to have much else to say other than we agree. Um, so that's interesting. And the Biden administration, at least rhetorically, doesn't disagree. I think you're going to see Republicans rally in the coming years around a hard line on China, even including some surprising corners of the party that are otherwise more non-interventionist. I am struck by almost every faction the party agrees on this, even people who are very critical or skeptical of U.S. interventions in the greater Middle East tend to like a hard line on China. I think it's going to be a unifying issue for Republicans. And I think you're going to see presidential candidates in the next three years preparing for their run by rallying around that issue. And as a matter of fact, they should. That's such an interesting point. And I really agree with you that we have seen China's increasingly repressive behavior at home and aggressive behavior internationally create a much stronger consensus uh, for a harder line on China and not just in the United States, right? The government of Australia was the first one to object to Huawei um, components in 5G networks. Uh, we, we rolled in in support of Australia, not vice versa. Um, and I think uh, the way that the Chinese government is attempting to mobilize diaspora, that is, they don't acknowledge that Chinese Americans are actually Americans, they just think of them as Chinese, and are bribing public officials, uh, those kinds of things can't bear the scrutiny of public exposure. And one of the great advantages free societies have is that they live in the ecosystem of constant exposure. Um, and so one of the important ways that I hope the Biden administration, when it gets its China strategy together, will think carefully about is how do we use the tools of free societies to protect and advance free societies? I would like to thank you four excellent scholars for this excellent education and for the privilege of being among you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review.
We'll see you next week.